I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This episode of Spaces Podcast is supported by BQE, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. I remember the, the main challenge when we started with the Tianjin library was to try to create a design that was ambitious and, and that could rethink the, the typology. So that we create a library that is not longer this uh, dull and depressing environment. This is Spaces Podcast where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thanks for coming back, everybody. As a quick note, this will be our last episode before a mid-season break. We'll return around mid-September, so please make sure to stay subscribed so you don't miss any episodes. We're now well over 150 episodes, so you have a ton of content to catch up on during this time. So I hope you'll listen or re-listen to some of our older content and come back in September to continue the conversation. In today's episode, we explore the evolution and design of libraries with Maria Lopez Calleja, architect and senior associate at MVRDV. As a design team leader for the firm, Maria will provide unique insight as we also highlight the Tianjin Binhai Library in Tianjin, China, designed by MVRDV and Tianjin Urban Planning and Design Institute. Maria discusses inspirations for design, the design process. We touch on a unique criticism of the building and dig into design concept versus reality. Now, if you're not familiar with the building by name, I'm confident you've seen photos of it somewhere. The Tianjin Library is a somewhat futuristic, yet organic, almost hollowed out space that's wrapped by terrace bookshelves, which echo the form of a sphere that's at the center of the space, and it creates an interior topographical landscape-type contours that mirrors the landscape that wraps around the building. Beyond Tianjin Library, you'll hear about the history and evolution of libraries, 
we explore the purpose of a library, discuss complexities, trends, opportunities for the future of library design, and much more. In this conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle, as we discuss library design with Maria Lopez Calleja. The last time you were in a library? Oh, actually, very recently. But if you had asked me like three weeks ago, I would have said, I don't know, like eight or nine years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so about three weeks ago, we actually did a walk to the library with the family because I have a daughter now and got new library cards. I had a library card, but apparently it, it had expired. <laughs> uh, so yeah, recently, just within this past month. Nice. Do you have a favorite library that you have either seen or actually been to? So my favorite library is probably the library in the center of USC's campus, uh, the Doheny Library. It has a basement. You can literally get lost in it. It's like, you know, your old typical educational or, or university library. So it's got this like really warm, dark, cozy feel. But yeah, super, super fun. That's probably my favorite library. Okay. I, I don't have a, li- a favorite library that I've actually been to, but the one that always comes to mind is uh, by Louis Kahn, and it's the Exeter Library. Uh, I actually had it as sort of a case study in, I think I want to say my second year of college architecture school. And in our case studies, you have to kind of like analyze the building, break down all the design components. And that was like, that really imprinted on me the the way that he uh, used brick, the openness of the space and the connectedness because it has this large light well in the middle and you can see across and you're, you're basically connected to everyone that's there. Um, so that was one that anytime I think of a library, that always pops into my head. So today we're, we're going to talk a little we're going to talk about libraries if you haven't picked it up yet and we have someone who has worked on a project that I think everyone has seen photos of this library that they recently or somewhat recently completed uh she's from MVRDV she's a senior associate there please help me welcome Maria Calleja Maria, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, honestly, I did not have the chance to visit many libraries in United States, yeah. but I had the chance to visit the Seattle one. Oh, yeah. Also for OMA from Dutch uh, architects. And, well, I think we will have a nice talk and conversation about libraries. I think it was a nice question like... Yeah, when was the last time you go to a library? Yeah. Why do libraries exist? Yeah. So I think I, hopefully I have some answers for, for it. Yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned the one in Seattle. Um, I was dying to get into that library and I was in a hotel literally across the street. Uh, we were there for about three days. I, I don't, can't remember if I told this story, but we were, across from the library for about three days and I was like I'm going there and I think the first day it was closed and the second day for some I think we had a jam-packed day and then the third day when I got up in the morning I checked uh, the schedule and I misread the hours and I thought it was saying that it was going to be open the next day, but it was actually open later because I, I just saw the closed and it was opening later that day and just completely screwed up and missed it and didn't get to go inside. But I did see the outside uh, and got to walk around it. But I, I'm jealous that you got to see it. <laughs> yeah. Maria, so, so you kind of mentioned uh, one question that popped up in my head when we talk about libraries. But um well, first, before we before we jump into the conversation, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your team at MVRDV? Yes. Well, the office was founded, I think, like 29 years ago by by Vinimas. He's the M. Jacob Van Rijs, he's the VR, and Natalie De Vries, that is the DV of MVRDV. 
Uh, we are right now um, around 270 employees, more than 30 nationalities, and we have offices in Rotterdam, Shanghai, Paris, and, and Berlin. We, we cover a large scope of services from architecture, urbanism, interior, publications, teaching, sustainability is one of our main goals, being, scripting, research, innovation. So we keep ourselves quite busy. And yeah. well, our presence is all around the world. And that means also a, a lot of cultural differences. And what we try to do is to work on translating the community concerns uh, into livable and pragmatic designs. I must say our, our approach is always global issues, contextual approaches. That's our, our main approach. And as I say, sustainability is one of our main goals. Our ambition is to become 100% sustainable. We are not there yet, but we are working with our in-house sustainability specialists, lead and brim assessors. We have a climate expert team within the, the office and we try to make it happen. And I think this is also really related to cultural program, uh, public facilities as library. For us, it's also key the community engagement. Uh, and for that, we, we facilitate collaborative process, like for master planning, or we try to develop resiliency strategy with the residents or the end users, and of course, using the technology for inclusivity. And we love to collaborate, of course. We, la we love to engage community, but we also love to research. And our research is spatial and experimental. And in a way, ex is exemplified by the, the Y Factory. The Y Factory is a think tank research institute that we run together with the Delft University of Technology and provide us an agenda for architecture and urbanism to envision the city of the future. And about me, I'm working at MBRDB since 2008, so already for 14 years. Uh, I'm senior associate, and I've been the project leader for the design, the development, and also the execution of projects such as the Tianjin Library but also, for example, to highlight also the, the imprint in, in Seoul, that in case was a casino in South Korea. Uh, and currently I'm working in, we call it the public studio, is more based on or focusing cultural programs, so I oversee the design process of our projects there, and I'm also responsible of the BIM implementation and development within MBRDB. Great. Now, getting into the discussion today on libraries, you hinted at a, a interesting thought of why do we have libraries? Two-part question. Can you talk a little bit about how you define a library and then just kind of go into your opinion of why do you think we have libraries? Yeah, I, I think if, if we will define a library with the strict definition, we will say it's a space that contains a collection of books. Mm -hmm. It's a hub for information. And if I will define it just like this, I could say that the library extinction is underway. Because, of course, I think the development of media uh, demands atten attention. Actually, the technology can be understood as the, as the downfall of the libraries. Because nowadays, it's possible to have information of everything and anywhere. We can download books. We can even print them if we wish. So the thing is like our need of information has not changed, but the way that we receive it, it changed uh, a lot. So yeah, that was the question. Why do you go to a library? And, and I will answer, I go for books, right? Yeah. So if I go for a library, I will just go for, for a book. But I, I believe there are other reasons to go to a library. And that can help me maybe to provide a better definition of what a library means. First of all, I think that you go to a library and actually you end up reading. You end up taking a book 
checking it, reading it. So I think the libraries are the most inspiring places for, for reading. And libraries are really the ones that stimulates the experience of reading. We have to keep it. And especially for the kids, that's something they need to experience and learn from. Another reason is I found also libraries the space for legacy, for our old books, for the existing ones. They are the, the places to host them. And then one that I think is uh, kind of the tendency now is that the libraries are way more than books because they are public facilities and they make possible for people to meet and exchange the information. They actually, they are becoming the community centers. And I believe that in keeping public spaces that celebrates access to the knowledge is a must to, to go for all of us. Yeah, that's such a great point about it being sort of this community space. It's a, it's a place for discovery, I think, that, that you don't quite get being on the internet. Indeed, and I think more and more they evolve to become bigger because the, the thing is like the libraries that are modest, that they are local and sort of the same collections does not comply with the large and the more differentiated demand of books that and information that, that is needed. So they are increasingly becoming this place for learning. They are also the centers to solve issues and problems. You go there to really find information. They are also becoming also places I, I see cases they they become like networking areas that you can mm -hmm. have different activities also for business. They really ask for feedback to the communities. What do they need? And they try to, to integrate it into, into the library. Defined as a collection of resources, manuscripts, publications, and other materials, libraries, in a sense, have existed for almost as long as records have been kept. In fact, as far back as the third millennium BC, a temple in the Babylonian town of Nippur was found to have several rooms filled with clay tablets, suggesting a well-stocked archive or library. Ashur Banipal, who reigned 668 to 627 BC and was considered the last of the great kings of Assyria, maintained an archive of some 25,000 tablets in what is identified as the first library with transcripts and texts that were systematically collected from temples throughout his kingdom. The evolution of libraries is a fascinating story of ups and downs. The downs driven by the entanglement between a library's purpose as a repository of practical knowledge, and in many cases also as a historical archive of rulers, philosophies, and religions, which subsequently made them war targets, through the course of regime changes and religious conflict. In ancient China, for example, some ancient records claim that the ruler of the first unified Chinese empire, the Qin Dynasty, Emperor Qin Shi Huang, restricted records of practical knowledge to his own library, ordered that some books that criticized or undermined his power be burned, and that some historical records be destroyed so that history is seen to begin with his dynasty. Under the following regime, the Han Dynasty, repression of history was lifted. Attempts like these to repress or change history around the world may have encouraged more fervent writing of literature and inspired more formal record-keeping and classification schemes to be developed and maintained by civil service systems. In Greece, most of the larger Greek temples appear to have had libraries. The most famous collection was originally founded and organized by Aristotle with the intention of facilitating scientific research. Yet, under the cover of a war, the texts ended up in Rome after being looted from Athens in 86 BC. Aristotle's collection formed the basis for a library established at Alexandria, which became the greatest library of the time. The founders aimed to collect the whole body of Greek literature. This level of commitment to a library stimulated a culture of learning, and it soon became fashionable to have a private library in Rome. 
In Islamic countries, prolific reproduction of the written word fostered another wave of evolution for libraries. After the death of the Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century, his followers transcribed his teachings into the Quran, a papyrus manuscript that quickly became the sacred scripture of the Muslim religion. Believers were encouraged to read it and commit substantial portions to memory. In 750, regime changes led to many classical Persian and Greek works being translated into Arabic. Shortly thereafter, Muslims adopted the technique of paper making learned from Chinese prisoners of war, significantly increasing their capacity to reproduce the written word cheaply. By the 10th century, Baghdad and Cordoba had developed the largest book markets in the world. The enormous collection attracted the attention of Christian monks and scholars who were often sent to Cordoba to acquire new works. The European monastic communities found books to be essential to the spiritual life. As such, there were strict rules of use to protect them, including invoking curses against any person who stole them. Even under this strict security, books were lent to other monasteries and even to the secular public. To facilitate this, monasteries commonly had scriptorias, a space where manuscripts were copied. In this sense, monasteries sort of performed the function of public libraries. Books were expensive and beyond the means of all but a few wealthy people. But by the late Middle Ages, the 13th, 14th, and 15th century, there was an emergence of private book collections. New cultural factors, including the growth of commerce, the new learnings of the Renaissance period, the invention of a printing press, and a substantial expansion of literacy widened the circle of book collectors to include wealthy merchants. But in England, library expansion was curbed as Henry VIII brought about the end of the monastic libraries in 1536 to 1540 when the religious houses were suppressed and their treasures dispersed. There was even wholesale destruction in 1550 where university, church, and school libraries were purged of books embodying the old learnings of the Middle Ages. Elsewhere in Europe, the Reformation period, which is a major movement within Western Christianity that posed a religious and political challenge to the Catholic Church, also saw many of the contents of monastic libraries and town libraries, especially in Germany, destroyed. However, the Reformation leader Martin Luther passionately believed in the value of libraries and insisted on setting them up. Consequently, many town libraries in Germany date from this time, and they and the libraries of the newly created universities were at any rate partially built on the basis of some of the old monastic collections that were salvaged. Now, amongst the powerful and influential collectors, their growing interests and vast collections began to physically change the way that books were stored. At the Escorial Library in Madrid, built in 1584, medieval book bays, which were set at right angles to the light source, were phased out in favor of arranging collections in cases lining the walls. The old practice of chaining books to their cases was gradually abandoned, and in France, it became normal practice to place books in cases standing with their spines facing outward, which seems pretty obvious. By the 17th and 18th centuries, book collecting everywhere became more widespread. Throughout Europe and in North America, several of these private collections were assembled, many of which eventually became the core of today's great national and state libraries. This period also saw the establishment of new national and university collections. However, the increased interest in libraries led to growing pains. Libraries had increased in size, but administration was weak. Standards of service were almost non-existent. There was a lack of funds for acquisition. Librarians were often just a part-time role. And there was often no proper method of cataloging content. A leading figure in the transformation of library service was Sir Antonio Panizzi a political refugee from Italy who began working for the British Museum in 1831 and was its principal librarian from 1856 to 1866. He revolutionized library administration, 
demonstrating that the books in a library should match its declared objectives and showing what these objectives should be in the case of a great national library. A good catalog was paramount, and he developed detailed rules for catalogers. He also recognized that libraries in modern communities were potential instruments of study and research, available to all. Through implementation of a reading room at the British Museum and its accompanying bookstacks, he displayed how this potential might be realized. His ideas long dominated library thought in the field of research libraries and was expressed in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. In the U.S., public libraries had gained popularity, and in 1833, the first tax-supported library in the U.S. opened in New Hampshire. By the middle of the 19th century, the idea that community libraries would be supported by local authorities at public expense was widely accepted. This proved a significant stage in the development of libraries. Panizzi had stated that he wanted the facilities of a great library to be available to poor students so that they could indulge their learned curiosity, and in England in 1850, an act of parliament was passed enabling local councils to levy a tax to fund library facilities. Public library design began to reflect what we know of them today, composed of five broad types of spaces, collection space, user seating space, staff workspace, meeting space, and special use space, and more recently, the introduction of public electronic workstation space, which was prompted by a series of system advancements and the rapid rise of the digital age. In 1876, the Dewey Decimal System was introduced. This system allowed new books to be added to a library in their appropriate location based on subject, further evolving library organization. Nearly a century later, in 1970, computerized cataloging improved efficiency. Just 10 years after that, content began to be digitized, slowly reducing the amount of required storage space. And in 1991, the first digital library was introduced at Carnegie Mellon University. By the end of the century, computer-based systems provided an enormous network of information, especially in major urban centers. Increased adoption and attainability of home computers and a growing worldwide electronic network formed, and the library as a storehouse site was challenged. This dwindling need for a traditional storehouse an increase in contemporary sensibilities and cultural shifts further evolved the physical design of libraries. In the late 1990s, library design shifted towards an open concept and incorporated more community gathering spaces. From the 2010s to now, some libraries are responding to the creator economy, offering creator spaces, including maker studios, podcasting booths, video editing software, and related workshops and tutorials. Today, the influences of technology and culture have had a great impact on the design and use of libraries, but those pressures have yet to diminish their relevancy. As an incredible record of human history and a resource of knowledge to inspire the future of society, libraries are a uniquely essential asset for society. For starters, it is the only free and equitable resource for knowledge. For those of us that can afford it, we often overlook that we each individually pay an additional fee for internet access. Not everyone has that luxury. Libraries are a symbol of truth, knowledge, and history. In an era where, as we've seen in the past, there are assaults on these very principles, while simultaneously experiencing ever-expanding income inequality, this is a resource that must be protected and promoted at all costs. As an extension to Sir Antonio Panizzi's understanding that libraries in modern communities were potential instruments of study and research, it seems that their evolution could play a prominent role in unifying communities altogether. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. 
but we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. Now, before we get back to the conversation, let's take a short break to hear a bit more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love most. This series will help. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series, created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, aims to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew his practice from a solo practitioner to a 30-plus person firm, then later sold his firm to do what he does today, help architects be more successful through Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth for years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit, and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's BQE. Dot com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to the conversation. On one side of the spectrum, you mentioned a modest uh, library. On the other end of the spectrum, the Tianjin library that you guys worked on is not modest. <laughs> I, I would say it's not modest. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about that project and, um, and, and just kind of explain and how you guys approach that project? Yeah. For example, at NBRDB, I wouldn't say we have a clear approach. We have clear methodology. For us, it's really interesting to explore and expanding the, the existing typologies, especially regarding cultural projects. I remember the, the main challenge when we started with the Tianjin library was to try to create a design that was ambitious, 
and, and that could rethink the, the typology. So that we create a library that is not longer this uh, dull and depressing environments <laughs> that gone are the days of the musty, the carpeted rooms and the outdated t- technology. So that becomes more like a social space. That was something that we believe was promoting and the, the reading was promoting the, the books and, and was inspiring. That was the, the main a- approach for the Tianjin Library. But maybe I could also mention, because uh, our first library is in the Netherlands, is, is in Spikenise. And, well, we call it the Book Mountain. So in a way, it helped me a bit to define what was our approach. Um, with the Book Mountain, what we were trying to say, or what we're trying to express, that's that we believe that the books still plays a vital role uh, in the world, and that they should be really accessible, they should be really exposed, and then that everything should turn around the, the books. And in that sense, we started with a concept, I would like to call it like a shelf project, and, and then the space was organized in a way that the space tends to have as many shelves as possible, so that you can really do a route along all the bookshelves and well, the program was in a way stacking to create in this case kind of mountain or, or sigurat, like the temple of books. So that's the first thing that you see when you arrive. You know, there was a tendency that uh, all books were hidden or they were destroyed and then you could only reach the most, uh, the newest books on the, on the shelves. We tried to go a bit against that and expose as much as possible the, the knowledge and make it accessible. Mm-hmm. Of course, you need to look into the context, you need to look into the brief. More and more often, there are several functions uh, also to take in account. In the library was especially the theater, this ball, or what was called also the eye, that was in a way pulled into the, the volume that was already fixed and create this echo of terraces and bookshelves. Mm-hmm. To give you an idea, for example, Thinking about the LED lighting in all the different shelves and terraces is around mm. four kilometers. So we try to bring as much as possible space for for celebrating the, the books. Yeah. Maria, is there when you go when you, or when you see the photos of Tianjin, it's like a, a cave kind of feel. This it's just this big carved out space. What inspired that form that you guys ended up with there? Well, I will say, especially in MBRDB, we can get inspired, but we really need to have the arguments, a proper storyline why we end up with a geometry of a shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't lead the designs, but subjective opinions or... Of course, it's inspired by the by the fact that we we have this central element that is the the ball of the of the eye, and then we try to make this echo of with the with the terraces, and end up with this cave, uh, as you say, like a cave look like with mm-hmm. all the different the different terraces. But during the process, we had many different uh, models, physical models with different shapes. We were also studying which were the shapes that was providing the largest amount of bookshelves. So there were a lot of different studies about it. And that's like a cave, but I can tell you during the design process, that was not our main inspiration. That was also not next to the context. So, so was in a way uh, a reaction to introducing this special program into the main atrium and connecting the cultural corridor to the, to the park. Uh, Marie, I have a question. So I'm, I've been looking at the images and for anyone that is listening, you have to stop and you have to, to literally go Google this library, Tianjin. Maybe we can spell it T-I-A-N-G-J-A-N, uh, right? Is that, yeah. Did I get that right? Uh, Binhai Library. So it's in China. Um, these images are spectacular. I mean, just mind blowing. But if I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say now we are in peace with this. But <laughs> that, that was really fast track project. 
Uh, I remember that was three years uh, when we started, if I'm not mistaken, that was 2015 in November. There were some modifications about the plot, the location, some change of the program. When we were still on the concept design, we visit the site and already all the foundations were there. So you can imagine how many constraints structurally uh, we had there. They are compromises always with uh, fast-track projects. Uh, the thing that in China also, you always need to work with a co-architect. Uh, this co-architect also came from client side. Of course, we had always really good communication. We tried to collaborate on the best way, but structurally it was not possible. And especially because of fire protection, we needed more time to solve issues, to, to host more books. So because of safety, there was also a decision not to, to have all the books there. Was the project funded by the government? Or was yes. it privately yeah. funded? Oh, it's funded by the government. Okay. And then I, I may have missed this, so I apologize if you've already stated this. Is this library specific to one type of genre? And did you have any special architectural considerations uh, based on, on what it was kind of intended for? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's quite broad. If I'm not mistaken, uh, last numbers that I remember was 1.35 million of books. So they are traditional ones. I mean, what you see in the, in the atrium is the main space, the more collective space, but the rooms beside are all reading rooms. And there's also an archive on the, on the basement. So you could find from traditional Chinese books to more international ones. There's also area for technology, also for kids. So it's quite diverse collection. It's funny. Um, <laughs> that you mentioned the wallpaper thing, uh, Michelle. And it, this was recently sort of a scandal on Instagram. <laughs> but I love the fact that this reveals some of the reality of projects. Like you can come in with a concept and then sometimes it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. And one one of the explanations that I saw, um, I think it was directly from MVRDV, was that uh, the intent was for books to happen all the way up. And it was just a change on the client side that they didn't. I, I think it was supposed to work from the backside of those shelves so that you can. It was glass basically wrapped around on the upper levels and those books slide in on the backside and you can see them still. But they that, ended up that would not- have been spectacular. Yeah, so they ended up not doing that, and then they did the wallpaper up high. And I, I would assume the wallpaper that occurs down low is just so that it still has the look when books are taken out. But I don't know if, if you can speak any to that, uh, Maria. Yeah, indeed. The thing is, like, the structurally, the ceiling was not capable to, to afford the, the loads of having people standing, taking out the books, uh, but yeah, we had great, great ambition and idea, like could be reachable for for any space. So the lower levels were uh, accessible from from the main atrium, and then you could access from the other side, from the upper levels, also the the books. And with the glass, uh, they could also be visible for from the atrium. That was the the concept, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's I I appreciate that response so much because. You know, as Demetrius is explaining this idea that, you know, on the other side of the ceiling, people could be walking and accessing shelving, and then those shelves be glass on the backside so that you're seeing the backs of the books on one end, like in concept. And again, I, we're explaining this. And, and if you're not visually looking at the library, you're probably like, what are they talking about? <laughs> so, so go look at the photo as you're listening to this episode, and then you'll understand what we're talking about. What Demetrius explained is so utopic. It, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like this architectural gym. Maria, you bring it back down to reality of like the structural element of that, that, yeah, you actually couldn't have people standing. And then just think about the weight of books in and of itself yeah. uh, without the people. Um, so I appreciate that that perspective of, of, yeah, we had this really grand idea putting aside the cost to do that, you know, just 
engineering wise it wasn't really possible to execute on on the initial vision yeah because actually we were still studying and designing because if you if you look into detail like for example the terraces as we call it they have different dimensions because we were also planning different activities as wider that becomes you can also host meetings presentations lectures so we we in a way try to to create different activities in different areas. And while we, while we were doing this design, as I was mentioning, foundations were already there. Calculations of the main structure, the main trust uh, was there. We were visiting the site. The, the construction was super fast. So, yeah, it was, was not possible. That's why I also started with this breathing and saying we are in peace because uh, <laughs> actually well we received the appreciation we were not expecting when was the opening was really a hit i have to admit friends of mine sent me the instagram videos like a <laughs> few weeks ago and i say yeah. okay that's time to remind this moment that's okay <laughs> we 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 manage, but I'm happy that we have the chance to share what was our initial intention and, and idea, and I think was 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 great. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the reading rooms that you talked about, or really maybe where the bulk of the library is, because I almost feel like the main hall, again, which is what you see really advertised in the photos on your company's website. You know, that's very grandiose, but like when we think of a real library, like a real true research library, it doesn't look like what this <laughs> spectacular, you know, hall looks like. So I'm curious, as you move into these reading rooms or into kind of the back of house, if you will, does it feel more traditional or are there architectural elements that are just mind blowing in the way that this great hall is? Well, honestly, we were not commissioned to to design the interiors of, of what you call it like this back house of, of reading room. So they end up to be quite a standard. Okay. Uh, our main idea was like the, the terraces that are created as an echo of the of the sphere of the of the eye. They are in a way reproduced on the facade as louvre so we can control the the lighting the daylight into the rooms and the idea was also to continue these louvres inside so they also can become bookshelves inside so that the reading room was also spaces that they have the bookshelves along the the facade so the same system that we were planning for the upper level so you always enter a space that could be dedicated for reading spaces, and then that you have all the bookshelves uh, as continuation of the terraces that they were creating as an echo. Can you talk about the acoustics in that space? Um, does it echo? Is it loud? Because uh, you think of libraries, they're, they're very, very quiet and soft, and people whisper, and, and you feel very out of place if you speak at a normal volume. That I, I imagine it seems like that space would just really echo and radiate sound but what's it like well the thing is like uh, many people looks into the the bookshelves of the atrium like they are uh, just kind of wallpaper but they are perforated aluminium plates that's also is helping also on the terraces to control it yeah oh okay that's a great solution so we try to turn out a little bit the bookshelves issue there yeah Maria, what was the most complex part of Tianjin? And then maybe sort of further expanding on that, what is what is the most complex part about designing libraries in general? Well, I think for us it's clear the main goal was to create kind of monumental impression that could yeah. inspire. And that um, I think... They are two different. We would like to compare it more to the libraries of the 18th century. So they are also more like aiming to show books. 
Because if you look, for example, more to libraries of the 19th century, they are more like this labyrinth experience. And that's something we wanted to turn out. And the, the, yeah, the biggest challenge was how to expose these books to host the, the biggest amount number of books and to, in a way, promote the experience of reading and, and the, the social spaces. So, yeah, a challenge is how to change the traditional conceptions of, of the function of a library into a more modern way, more related to society and their needs. I, I think he executed on that. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the big giant globe in the middle? What's that space? What happens when you go inside of there? Yeah, it's a 360 uh, theater auditorium. Oh. So, yeah. Wow. Okay, is there actually seating in that space, or yeah. do you know how much square feet? How many square feet are? Um, I don't know by head, but I think it's around hundred fifty to hundred seats inside. Wow! Oh, it's really large. Okay. Maybe this is one of them, kind of introducing that theater. But what are some trends that you're seeing, and that you guys are sort of watching for for your next library <laughs> that you design? Well, it's a bit unpredictable because I've seen weddings in the library, in the Tin and Jean library, so <laughs> you know what you can expect. But as I was saying at the beginning, hopefully the governments are keeping and supporting financially uh, public facilities as library, as soon as they are also trying to cover most of the needs and requirements for, as I say, these equal ownership spaces for for everyone. Hard to predict, but I think at least for the next 30, 40 years, we still need uh, physical books. I think that will, that will stay. But I think that we'll be compiling more and more activities into, into the libraries. I think that will be the, the tendency for the current trends. Are you starting to see or, or have you seen more of the digital world come inside of libraries, whether that's computer room sounds kind of boring, but um, <laughs> are there other, yeah, are there just other things that are creatively on the mind to address kind of this really digital media driven world that we live in these days? I think a, a, an extension to that question, in your opinion, should we introduce technology into libraries or is it should libraries be something else it should they be maybe an escape from this technological mm. world very philosophical question there <laughs> well i think the technology we need it for example is the time that you go to the library and you have a, a easier research of whatever you are looking for. When I was saying before that many people go to libraries sometimes with problems, they need to find the proper information. We can provide it in a in a faster way, and we have the use of of technology for for that. Also, in terms of accessibility, we can also help, like, you can check with your tablet, can someone bring you the correct book to your hands, and you can check it on the time. So that could also mean that we are helping on inclusivity with the, with the technology. Um, yeah, maybe for exchanging also, that could be a way that could be improved. We see it also these days. You can also have interaction with people located in other areas with the, with the technology. But we still wanted to promote the, the physical, the physically presence of, of books, teaching our kids on it and not losing the, the experience of, of reading. Yeah. Michelle, where do you fall on that philosophical question? You know, I think I think as we build new libraries, yes. I don't mm. know that I would take the old institutions and convert them in any way. I mean, maybe mm. maybe there's a smaller kind of digital room where you can you know, really access the archives of news articles or, you know, newspapers and things like that, but I don't I don't, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's I I liked your question because you're right. Like it can be a reprieve in the same way that I remember, you know, back when like Barnes and Noble and Borders bookstores and some of like the national book chains. Like yeah. you, you would go there as an activity. I mean, at least I would. You know, you go there as an activity. You get a coffee, you eat a pastry, and then you kind of roam 
whatever and you you find something and then you end up sitting on the floor and <laughs> you you're there for you know an hour and like it was like a fun thing you could do it on a date night type of thing and though that that doesn't exist anymore like you know one all of those stores have for the most part gone away mm-hmm. um and so your question about the library like yeah it can be a really really nice reprieve I mean, I think back to my history of like, when have I really truly visited a library? And honestly, like, it was back when I was still a student, and Mm. you were writing research papers, and you needed, you know, all these different sources. And I just wonder, like, if you're a student today, is that still a necessity? Or do you have through your computer or your phone and and the Google, uh, you know, (laughs) access to everything that back when we were students, you know, the three of us, that technology didn't exist. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. I, I, but I think for new development of libraries, it seems like it would be appropriate to incorporate elements of technology and media Mm -hmm. Um, into the library i i don't know that i would advocate to do that in older libraries yeah i i'm on the side that i think libraries are something different today to your point earlier maria i think future libraries should really be leaned into this idea of community and connection with others and sort of hanging out to network and talk about the, the stuff that you're looking at in the books. And I think it should be always a reprieve from the technological world because it's, it's something different that you're going there for this tangible idea. So it, I think it should definitely be separate and, and leaned more into this idea of connection, however that may manifest itself. Uh, Maria, what societal changes do you think are going to impact the future of of libraries, um, anything come to mind about how how we're evolving right now that that you think is going to continue to change libraries? Well, so far, what we have also seen, especially in the Tianjin Library, was in a way surprising that the people did not go only for the content of the library, but did also went for the space. And in that sense, we need to be provocative. And I think we managed to do it. And then that we can provide inspiring spaces, provocative ones, um, places that people attract. I I mean, we were, I remember we were hit by so many selfies, you go to the to the library. Everyone is taking a picture, and yeah, sometimes also criticize like, "Are you doing an architecture uh, to be posted?" Or well, uh, we had a, a storytelling. We had a lot of arguments to to build it up, and if in that sense we also provocate and and people is going to our library, we are proud and and welcome for that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see data if they could track how many people go in there and leave or how many people go in and they don't intend to really grab a book, but they end up grabbing a book. That'd be an interesting data to to grab if if possible. My guess is the vast majority of people for that particular library are walking in for the Instagram selfie <laughs> moment, right? And then they're and then they're moving on. Um yeah. I would love to see the data on just how many people actually frequent a library for the purpose of a library, you know, to do research, to, to lease a book, you know, it's just, it's, (laughs) our technology has made it so easy to get access to, to books in other ways. Uh, And I'm not saying that's the right way, but it's just, that's the fact of the matter. Um, I do think it's interesting that you just used the word provocative with library. I mean, who would have (laughs) thought that we'd be describing provocative libraries yeah, that's uh, that's pretty funny. And to, to your point about like how how many people go into a library, like when I was talking about going to the Seattle Library, I wasn't gonna go grab a book at all. I just wanted to walk and experience the space itself. So, I, I to your point, I think most people don't uh, go to into these at least these well-designed libraries uh, for the intent of actually grabbing a book it's more about experiencing the space at least today 
Yeah, I agree. Maria, a question. So talking about trends, is putting food and beverage in a library, is that at all discussed at all? You know, know, having a cafe, having a coffee kiosk, I mean, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. And and in many briefs, we also uh, have it. Uh, for the Tianjin Library, as it's part of a, a larger complex, there are other places to to go for a grab a coffee and and to have lunch. But for example, in our library in Spikenisse, that I uh, is called the Book Mountain, actually on the peak you have a nice terrace with the with the view to all the reading terraces up, uh, below. And and I remember uh, last time I was there, there was also some musicians, so there was some music, nice music there. So that's also yeah, this mix of different activities are, are needed and are functioning in the libraries. Maria, one last question for you: for anyone taking on the design of a library. What's one thing you would want them to consider and think about? You know focus their attention on in approaching this typology? I will be repeating myself, but I think it also brings your attention to be provocative. I think that's also something needed these days that there's a consideration of what's the future of a, of a library. Uh, I think it's also really important during the design process, the discussion with the end users to get the feedback, what is needed for the community, try to integrate it into the library. I think it has to be a collaborative process, um, not stuck to the first brief. Also see what is needed and can be implemented into the library using the technology. I think that's also, I could not give perspective of how we'll be used it, in, uh, but I think that needs also to be included. But I think it's, it's key to have collaborative process and 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 try to create inspiring spaces for for people to engage them. Yeah, Maria, you you had mentioned something there that spiked a thought in my head was another thing that we have not talked about on the importance of libraries and sort of trying to hold on to them and, and to engage community and and this connection is we're kind of in this era of war on knowledge. And I think libraries are a key hub to provide knowledge to people and to sort of pull people out of these um, rabbit holes that that they get sucked down online. Can you talk a little bit about that or, or either of you any thoughts to that? Yeah, I think it's also aligned to the to the discussion. For us, um, it's important that we facilitate uh, a large possibility for access to knowledge, and we still believe, especially towards the written knowledge, that's uh, that should be. I mean, if there are tons of people that are going to the library uh, to make a selfie, but we still manage like few of them are going and pick up a book. They are also going with their kids, with their family. They are joining the activities to exchange information. I think that's that's a step to 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 follow. Yeah. Michelle, anything to add before we wrap up? Uh, in some ways, it just feels like libraries... I don't know, not deteriorating, but that they just kind of are a thing of the past. And I think it's refreshing to hear that they're still being designed and created and developed and built and and are still being recognized as this community gathering institutional gem that that we really kind of need in our societies. So I think it's great. I, I, I just am so curious to see kind of what will the state of the library be in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, you know, as, as again, the world becomes more and more and more digital uh, for better or for worse. Um, it's just really interesting, but just kind of how that space, you know, we're, we're here talking about spaces and how the, the space of the library can serve and be so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maria. Uh, this has been such a fascinating conversation uh, to get your perspective on libraries and how you guys approach it at MVRDV. Um, how, what's the best way that people can follow along uh, if they want to get more information? 
in media we are many places instagram linkedin you can always react to any post uh, we have um, more personally if they uh, you gather any questions any requests and they are sent, directly send it to me okay. i i will answer as soon as possible okay and then the website is mvrdv.com yeah. And uh, I'm sure you can easily find, you can search and find the Tianjin Library and uh, the Book Mountain. Is it is it titled Book Mountain on your website? Do you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so you can find both of those. And then we'll also share uh, on our Instagram and links in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me again. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we will talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.